Hi, welcome to the sixth installment of Snooping Caprock by Jen Waldo. In the last segment, Sandra had a conversation with the murdered zookeeper's son, and the zookeeper, Tansy, was badly beaten. Also, Sandra's tires were slashed and someone tripped her house alarm, which led Joe Epps to offer to negotiate peace between her and her tormentor, Paula Mercer. In this segment, Sandra will poke around Paula's workplace and Ham's wife, Millie, will overdose on sleeping pills. There are three cars in the parking strip in front of the VMF, one of them Paula's. I pull in between her car and an old Saturn. Two minutes later, Joe pulls in on the other side of Paula's Camaro. We both get out. Thanks again for doing this, I tell him. You need to be more careful about who you rile, he says. I don't know her personally, but I hear she's a real piece of work. Unlike on Sunday afternoon, the gate is wide open. We walk through, following a relatively straight sidewalk into the depths of the yard. On both sides of the pavement, deep, jagged trenches scar the ground, the result of moving heavy equipment after a rain. We pass between trucks and buses and big orange digging machines, eventually arriving at a flat, low building with a sign on the door that identifies it as the VMF main office. We enter to find Paula in the office area behind a long counter. The smell of hamburgers and french fries wafts beneath my nostrils, a warm, enticing aroma that makes my stomach growl. I don't see any food out, but it's been here recently. There are three desks, two of them obviously unoccupied. No computers, no paperwork, not even chairs tucked beneath them. Sitting at the middle desk, Paula murmurs into a phone. As soon as she sees us, her eyes dart toward the side exit, a nervous reaction that stirs my suspicion. She seems to be the only worker here. Beyond her is a closed door. A mounted plate beside the door identifies Gaiman Chomiak, manager of Caprock Maintenance Facility. I've heard the name before, but I can't remember when or where. In this setting, dressed simply in navy pants and a beige top, Paula doesn't look nearly as fierce or as intimidating as she did the other night in Grumpy's. If I didn't know her, I'd describe her as a benign, middle-aged bureaucrat. She's overweight, she wears snow makeup, and it looks like her dark, curly hair hasn't been combed all day. She ends the call, comes to her feet, and approaches. She glares at me, but tones down the hostility when she turns to Joe. How can I help? she asks, knowing he's a cop, though he hasn't shown ID. I wonder if she recognizes him as the guy sitting next to me at Hattie's the other night. It's become apparent that the two of you have your differences, Joe says. You need to make peace and move on. Did she tell you she's been following me? Paula asks. She's been spying on me and my friends and sticking her nose in our business. If that's the case, she'll apologize and it won't happen again, he says, and you'll stop messing with her car and tripping her alarm. How does that sound? If she sticks to it, Paula replies, I better not see her in my rearview mirror or anywhere around where I am again. Sandra, Joe prompts. I'm sorry and it won't happen again, I say. Apologies come easily to me. Ladies, he says pompously, my work here is done. I turn to walk toward the door, but Joe lingers. You're a friend of Tansy Carlin's, he tells her, as though she's unaware. What do you know about her getting beat up? She's sharing information with you about that? Why don't you ask her? asks Paula. I did, he tells her. She won't say. Then I won't either, she says. Joe turns and follows me out. We walk silently until we get to the cars. Thanks, I tell him. Steer clear of her from here on out. I mean it, he says as he sinks into the driver's seat of his car. I get in my car too, but I don't turn it on. I wait until he's pulled away, then get back out and re-enter the VMF. Instead of heading toward the central building, Paula's domain, I take a right and make my way through the machinery and vehicles, which are only separated from one another by a foot or so. Some sections are paved with tarmac and others are pitted dirt, which makes each step a rough surprise. 
The place smells of motor oil and rubber. I've penetrated two rows of dump trucks and tractors before I come upon two employees, men with gray caps and gray uniforms, both collaborating over clipboards as they gesture toward a pair of front loaders. One of the men is tall and thin with blonde strands poking from beneath his cap. The other is short and jowly, his face marked by thick black eyebrows. I recognize him from the town meeting. Well, not from the meeting itself, but from the photos of the meeting. He was one of the people sitting behind me, arms folded, looking annoyed. Hey, guys, I say, squeezing between a couple of gigantic filthy wheels and approaching. How you doing? Where'd you come from? The tall one asks, scanning the area, confused. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? You're that girl from the town meeting. This from the dark one. You missed the office. Go back to the gate and head straight back. The woman in the office wasn't helpful, I tell them. Where's the manager of this place? Gaiman Chomiak. I bet he could tell me what I want to know. Yeah, well, in order to do that, you'd have to go back a year, he says. Pardon me? Lady, you need to head back toward the front. This isn't a place for sightseeing. I'm just curious about what goes on here, I respond in an innocent tone. That's all. It's dangerous just to be wandering through this place unsupervised, he insists. Dangerous how, I ask. This is heavy equipment back in here, he informs. Things fall and roll. You need me to escort you out, the other asks. No thanks, I answer. I turn back the way I came, but cannot resist trying one more time. Just tell me, what is it you're doing? We got schedules and maps, the dark one raises his clipboard. He's impatient, but too polite to ignore a direct question from a small woman. People let us know when they're going to need what, so we move equipment around so they can get to it. Does this all belong to Caprock? I ask him. It seems like a lot. The city and the two counties, he tells me. Caprock straddles two counties, so it's often the central location for joint ownerships and projects. So a lot of people have access, I say. The only people who have access are the people who should have access, he points out. Now you need to get on out of here. I go back the way I came, but when I get to the front gate, instead of exiting, I continue on, exploring the opposite side of the big lot. In the middle of the southeast quadrant, three oversized trucks, ladder trucks, are parked behind a long, rusty fire truck. Ladders are folded into the beds of the truck, and heavy metal baskets are secured at the back. I've seen these around town. They're used for elevating workers so they can change streetlights and trim trees. And now my suspicion is a solid shape rather than a diaphanous shadow. I leave the VMF. I want to grab some dinner before smokers. I long for a hamburger. After tonight, it won't be my turn to act as facilitator or booze supplier for smokers for a year. On the way to the CCC, I stop in at Bricks, a small liquor store in the strip mall at Astor and May, and buy Bailey's Irish Cream. The men will groan, oh, too sweet, but the women will be thrilled. As I turn into the parking lot of the CCC, I feel a tug of apprehension. I took a hit at last week's meeting. Will the group still be critical and preachy? Hopefully they've moved on. Three cars are already in the lot. I pull up next to Amy's new car. She sits behind the wheel, staring straight ahead, lost to her thoughts as she lifts a cigarette to her lips. No, not a cigarette. Heavier, a little thicker. I give a polite beep to draw her attention. Startled, she looks over and, embarrassed to be caught sucking on an e-cig, lowers it. I get out, circle my CRV, and stop by her door. She lowers the window. You know you never need to be embarrassed or ashamed in front of me, I tell her. It's exasperating that she thinks I would judge. We were hard on you last week, she says. Which doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be hard on you, I say. I'm not a tit-for-tat person. I guess I know that, she says, tucking her fake cigarette into a case and dropping it in the passenger seat. She grabs her purse and gets out of her car. Your new car is nice, I tell her. 
Thanks. You won't tell anyone? If the others find out about the e-cig, they'll gang up on her just like they did me. Of course not. We begin strolling toward the door. You want to talk about the town meeting? She asks. Why were you so intense about the new Monday night group? Did I seem intense? I want to know. You were shouting and almost in tears, she says. I had no idea. I recall the photo. I looked focused, possibly a bit too passionate. But to be perceived as almost in tears and shouting? I only wanted to be heard above the others. Someone calls out behind us. We turn to see Lurleen extricating herself from her mini. Please tell me that this isn't going to be a repeat of last week, I say in response to Amy's comment about the town meeting. If it is, I'm getting back in my car right now. Out in the parking lot, Lurleen closes, locks, and rushes to catch up. No, I promise, Amy says, and if anybody brings it up, I'll run interference. Hey, you two, Lurleen greets, her eyes sparkling with excitement. You guys hear the latest scoop? It's juicy. What? What is it? Amy asks. It's about Wendy, Lurleen tells us. Wendy from grief, I ask. Wendy Cowart? Still perturbed at Wendy over last week's power play, I lean forward, spitefully hoping for some wicked tale or stroke of bad luck. Lurleen, also in grief, understands my malicious curiosity. Yes, Wendy from Grief, and Donald, the guy from Possession Obsession, Lurleen answers, seen on a dinner date on Saturday night. Not quite the development I was expecting. Annoying and confounding. Not pleasing. Donald is in Possessions, and Wendy is in Grief. Neither of them is a crossover. How do they know each other? What could they possibly have in common? Me, that's what. I don't know either of them, Amy comments, disappointed that the gossip doesn't touch her life in any way. An odd pairing, I observe. Where were they? Who saw them? They were at the Outback, one of the dozen or so chain restaurants on the highway. I don't know who saw them, she says, but I know it's true. It disturbs me that you're spreading rumors you can't verify, I tell her. Everything disturbs you, she says. Is it any less true because I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend? She has a point. We go on in where Wendell, Marv, and Eve are waiting. A couple of minutes later, a few others arrive, and I get the meeting started. Just like last week, and the week before, and the week before that, and so on, every person in the circle shares a story of how he or she failed when confronted by temptation. As the guilt turns into purple clouds of shame that rise and waft around the room, my mind conjures up a scenario where Donald and Wendy are hunched over a table getting chummy over ribs. The light is dim, but the ambient racket isn't conducive to romance. Every time I've been to the Outback, I have found the clanging, banging music and the taking of orders to be overwhelmingly loud. It's a bustling venue on a Saturday night, so I'm certain their conversation over dinner consisted of broken sentences and the occasional, Say again? When it's my turn to speak, I fabricate a humiliating tale about how a passerby noticed me smoking too close to the elevator of the parking garage at work and threatened to turn me into the building security. The reactions toward the Baileys are expected, but though the men protest and call the concoction girly, they hold out their cups for seconds. After last week's attack, the group seems determined to be nice to me, thank goodness. The break conversation opens with a discussion of the Donald and Wendy scuttlebutt, with no one shedding fresh light on the topic. After a few minutes, the topic shifts to the freed animals and the murder of Hector Vasquez. Who do you think did it? Someone asks. The cops are clueless, says someone else. They're dragging their feet. This has gone on long enough. I think they should look at the sun. I think they should look at the zookeeper. I heard she was a lesbian, so yeah, she's been keeping secrets. Where do you hear that? I ask. I'm probably not the only one who knows, but the only people I've told are Bill and Karen. Someone in the possessions group... As the meeting picks up again, my mood sinks. 
I'm upset about Donald and Wendy dating. Even though Donald has probably been elusive just to tease me, I like him. He enjoys eating popcorn and drinking beer in front of the news. He likes to fish. He has a pleasant backyard. He's supportive of others in the group, and he doesn't judge. Wendy, on the other hand, is narcissistic, controlling, and manipulative. She'll ruin Donald's life. Also, I'm frustrated over the lack of volition in smokers. In the other groups, though some people try harder than others, the efforts are sincere. But in this group, nobody seems determined or dedicated at all. I'm compelled to speak out. Before we dismiss for the evening, I have something to say, I tell them. They shift nervously in their seats and exchange fretful glances. I propose that we rewrite our mission statement using stronger language. I'd like us to renew our commitment to our goal. It seems like, statistically, at least two of our numbers should have quit smoking by now. I'm the facilitator next week, Marv says. How about we open this discussion then? There's a murmur of agreement. Marv has managed to tactfully shelve the issue. There will be no discussion next week. No one wants to recommit. They don't want to change in any way. I am defeated. Depressed, I return cheerful goodbyes with half-hearted nods. When I reach the sanctuary of my front seat, I just sit there, resting my forehead against the wheel, wondering why I even try. One by one, the other group members' cars leave the lot. Feeling that depression is trying to find a way into my mind, I close the door on my glum mood and drive toward Donald's. Will Wendy's little Nissan be parked in his driveway? How serious is their relationship? As far as I know, they've only been on one date. Also, where does Wendy live? Parking a few houses up and on the opposite side of the street, I walk casually toward Donald's house. It's a dynamic sort of evening. The wind swooshes high in the trees, making the branches click and shaking the leaves loose so that they drift on eastbound currents. Gray clouds also move eastward, sailing gracefully across the black, black sky. The moon offers little light, and the stars, too, are dim. Wendy's car isn't there. The garage door is closed, so I can't actually tell if Donald's car is there or not, but there are no lights coming from inside the house. It's 9.30. Maybe he's gone to bed early. Deciding to look in his garage to see if his car is there, I pass the front of the house, peering through the windows into the dark dining room and kitchen as I make my way up the driveway to the side. Access to the garage is through the backyard. Remembering how, last time I was here, the gate had an awful squeak, I open it an inch at a time and only wide enough to squeeze through. I'm so absorbed in my plan, get to the garage, check for the car, that I don't notice the smell of tobacco, and I certainly don't see the dark shape sitting in the lawn chair beneath the tree. I heard you did this kind of thing, Donald comments. I jump and emit a squeak. The flat voice seems to be coming from the tree on the left. Then I see the glow of a cigarette as he inhales. I move toward him. I like to check that my friends are okay, I tell him, moving into the yard and taking a seat on the bench beside the picnic table. Is that what you tell yourself, he asks, that you're making sure your friends are okay? I worry, I tell him. Sometimes checking's the only way I can get to sleep at night. You really don't recognize boundaries at all, do you, he asks. There are times when the best response to a question is to say nothing. He takes a drag on his cigarette, exhales, glugs a swallow of beer, inhales again, and releases. As the silence grows longer, it grows more comfortable. I sigh as I feel my shoulders relax. All the unhappiness I gathered to myself during tonight's group rises up higher and higher until it joins the clouds and is swept away. Releasing a grunt as he bends and reaches, Donald puts his cigarette out in an empty beer can on the ground. There's so much I want to know. How to get together with Wendy? What does he see in her? Why does he come to possession obsession? Does he realize that Wendy doesn't even think it's a legitimate group? But I don't ask any of these things. After ten minutes or so, he gets up, stretches. I'm going in, he says. All righty then.
I reply. I get up, too, and head toward the gate. I like your backyard. You have it fixed up real nice. Some people might put up with your quirks, he says. They might even think the things you do are cute because you're small and harmless and energetic. But it's wrong and dangerous to go walking around other people's property at night, looking in windows and sneaking into backyards. One of these days it's going to get you in trouble. I slip through the gate and close it behind me. The alarm doesn't go off during the night, so that's good. In the morning, Edgar is sluggish. He doesn't seem to want to wake up, and his meow is weak. I call Mom. Edgar seems sick, I tell her. Has he vomited? Sometimes he vomits. He vomits. Great. It's nothing to worry about. It's just a thing cats do sometimes. No, I say he just seems too tired to move. He's up to date on his shots, she tells me, but he is getting old. Who's his vet in case he's not better when I get home from work, I ask, careful not to reveal my resentment. It's bad enough they stuck me with their cat. Now he's probably going to die on my watch. Morales, Mom tells me. She's easy to get hold of. I'm sorry if he's causing you to worry. I'm not worried yet, I say. The big cat is spread across the foot of the bed, eyes glinting warily at me as though he suspects I'm discussing him. He tends to be moody, she says. Where are you, I ask. Virginia, we've seen some stunning countryside. She talks for ten more minutes about what she sees when she looks out the passenger window. We end the call and I get ready for work. I check Edgar before leaving. He's still on the bed, eyes closed now. His breathing seems quick, but what do I know about cat breathing? I'm the first one in the office, and I use the time to find Wendy Cowart on Facebook. Most of her postings have to do with being optimistic about life. Fluffy animals, cute toddlers, flowers blossoming at sunrise. These happy pictures and videos are not illustrative of Wendy's true nature. She'd be better depicted by images of tornadoes and carnage. Is she misrepresenting herself deliberately, or does she really see herself as a person who enjoys cuddly babies and corny poems? Oh, also, she's been divorced twice and has a child from each marriage. I try to envision her as a mother. From what I've seen of her in grief, she's a know-it-all who likes to be the center of attention. I cannot imagine her putting her children's needs before her own. Her kids are probably whiny, angry, and loud. No, private, quiet Donald won't be interested in her for long. Oh, and here's another tidbit. She's the founder and director of Caprock Outreach, whatever that is. I look it up. It's a charitable program subsidized by the city that teaches women how to, well, how to do everything. Located in the old downtown area, they offer classes on how to dress, how to communicate effectively, how to be assertive, how to take care of small children. Self-defense, healthy cooking, money management. There's even a class called Finding Your Humor. It's not surprising that broad-hipped, egotistical Wendy has taken it upon herself to tell other people how to live. What is surprising is that anybody would listen. I take down the address of Caprock Outreach. I've just managed to find Wendy's home address, 1703 Harrell, when Hazel enters. I immediately blank the screen, but Hazel's quick. Looking up someone's address, she asks. Oh, you know me so well, I respond. Who are you obsessing over now, she wants to know. Not obsessing, I'd say, just mildly interested. Ham walks in half an hour earlier than usual. Without speaking or acknowledging us in any way, he heads straight to his office, closes the door, leaving Hazel and me staring. What was that about, she asks. He didn't look good. Unshaven, uncombed, untucked, which can only mean one thing. Millie, says Hazel. I wonder what she's done now. It becomes clear ten minutes later when Janine calls from her office next door. It's all over the building, she tells me. Millie Ham overdosed on sleeping pills. She spent the night in the hospital. Oh, no, I say. This has happened before. Poor Ham. 
They say she's being released this morning, but only with supervision. This, too, is nothing new. Ham will either have to take a couple of days off, or Millie's sister will come and stay with her for a few days. Okay, I say, thanks for letting me know. I end the call and immediately go in search of Hazel, who's in one of the examination rooms preparing for the first patient. I tell her about Millie. Usually, Hazel handles this kind of news with stoic equanimity, but today's report is met with uncharacteristic distress. She even goes so far as to pound her fist on the counter. He's done the right thing all his life, she says. He's always patient with her, and the things she's put him through, he deserved better, damn it. She's almost in tears. He would have been a wonderful father, but no, she didn't want kids. She didn't want anything or anyone to pull his attention from her. I have never, never understood why he chose her. I open my mouth to explain that he chose Millie because he defines love as a challenge that should consume all he has to give. To him, love is an eternal fountain pouring from his heart and running freely. He doesn't expect reciprocation. He doesn't keep score or exchange favors. He just gives and gives. But she overrides whatever analysis I might offer, continuing her rant. He could have been happy. And here he is, 60 years old and looking 70, worn out from all the drama. Nothing has ever been enough for her. Self-centered, needy, demanding. It never once occurred to her that she could control the way she acts. She never once said to herself, stop, thank, don't say this mean thing, don't do this crazy thing. She's a slave to her impulses and she never once in her whole life has thought about anyone but herself. And then she just stops. She slumps and she turns back to her task. She too is 60. She and Ham grew up together. She's worked for him for 30 years, and her husband died 15 years ago. Poor Hazel. Everything she said about Millie is true. I return to the counter, and the day gets started. At lunch, rather than walk with the ladies, I grab an apple from the break room and drive to the oldest part of town. Eighty years ago, this was a thriving city center. Now, this square mile is comprised of large brick buildings in varying states of decay. Dark storefronts, cobbled streets, and broken parking meters are eerie evidence of past commerce. Though the area has been through several gentrification attempts, it remains unable to sustain an economy. Most of the buildings are empty or, as in the case of Caprock Outreach, occupied by charities because the rent is low. Across the street from Caprock Outreach is Goodwill, and across the intersection at 10th and Jackson is the Salvation Army. Further along is an old church that's been turned into a homeless shelter, which is always surrounded by Caprock's street people. I park in the pitted lot beside Goodwill. This offers a perfect view of the front of Caprock Outreach. I scan the area. The door of Caprock Outreach is propped open. Next to the building is a parking lot, and in the parking lot is a single car, Wendy's Nissan. I'm there for less than three minutes when Wendy exits the building, locks the front door behind her, and heads toward the car in the adjacent lot. When she flops behind the steering wheel, the whole small car tilts with the added weight. I follow her all the way to the Burger King drive through on Miller. Pulling to the side, I nibble on the apple and watch as she places her order and inches forward for 10 minutes before receiving what looks like a substantial meal. The oversized cup is either a large soda or a milkshake, and the bag is huge, which indicates a boxed burger and large fries. She drives back to her work. Parking in the same place, I watch as she loads her arms with her takeout and once again enters her building. Then I go into Goodwill. This is the same Goodwill shop that I donated my bunny collection to. I wonder if they're still here. The place smells exactly the same, dusty and dank. Hi, how are you today? The old guy behind the counter is ecstatic that someone has come through the door. He has bushy eyebrows and white hair sprouting from his ears. Sometimes people get to a point where they can no longer put in the effort it takes to keep their hair under control. Tell me about the place across the street, I say. It doesn't seem busy. That's Wendy's place, he tells me. She's real nice, pops in over here every couple of days to say hi. Caprock Outreach, what does that mean? 
Well, she helps women who've fallen on hard times, he says. You mean like a shelter, I wonder? No, he replies, more like a school. She teaches women how to dress appropriately and get through interviews, computer skills, and stuff like that. Have you ever actually seen any women over there? I want to know. You mean other than Wendy? No, come to think of it. You used to have some ceramic bunnies, I tell him. Are they still here? No, haven't seen anything like that. Have a nice day, I tell him as I walk out the door. I go back outside, walk up the sidewalk a short distance, and cross the street out of the line of sight from Wendy's window. Approaching the storefront from the periphery, I peer inside at an angle. Though I'm only able to scan half the interior, I get the idea. Chairs are set up in a classroom formation facing a lectern, and behind the lectern is a table and chair. Wendy sits at the chair, eating her hamburger and flipping through a magazine. Propped against her chair legs are the same two items she has beside her in grief, purse on one side, briefcase on the other. Not for the first time, I reflect upon the briefcase. Did she pull her magazine from it? Does she carry around lesson plans for her non-existent life students? Do I need a briefcase? Later that afternoon, when I arrive home, it's to find this morning's concern about Edgar was pointless. He's fine. Lying in a triangle of sunshine, he's waiting for me to put food in his bowl. For the first time, I'm glad to have him here. It's nice to have someone who's happy to see me, even if it's just a cat waiting to be fed. I have grief tonight, I tell him, adding, now that I know that Wendy claims to help people when what she really does is eat massive fatty lunches and read magazines, well, let's just see her try to play head games with me again. With a meow, he pads after me as I go into the bedroom to change. An assortment of random items is clumped in the middle of my bed. A can of hairspray, a kitchen towel, a house shoe, a roll of scotch tape, a two-year-old postcard from Mom and Dad at the Grand Canyon. Someone has been in my house. Spooked, I redistribute the items back to their proper places. Then I take a squinting tour around the house, checking for other things that might be out of place. Everything else is as it should be. The faulty lock on the back window has been jimmied and the window is raised. I'm not in the habit of turning on the alarm during the day, so that explains how. I decide to concentrate on why someone would do this odd thing before considering who. Possible motives. Anger. Obviously not a violent rage, more a seething and vicious resentment. This is the gesture of someone prone to sneakiness and ambiguous communication. Reciprocity. I breached someone else's privacy, so they breached mine. I know scads of people who think they have something to teach me. A warning. This might be a harmless way of reminding me that my little intrusions are likely to be met with consequences, which might not always be as benign as this. Attention. Maybe someone wants me to notice him or her. The items gathered indicate intimacy, not hostility. Perhaps this was a childish reaction to some small rudeness or carelessness on my part, of which I was likely unaware. These are all the reasons I can come up with. Now, for who? Donald didn't appreciate me entering his backyard last night. He told me I was setting myself up for some sort of payback. Paula and I had an agreement that would stay out of each other's way, but she has no honor and she likes being mean to me. Tansy also might be telling me to mind my own business, though last time I saw her, she was in no shape to leave her house, much less break into mine. I think about my closer relationships, my work friends, Janine, Hazel, Ham, and with the thought of Ham, Millie comes to mind. Millie. This sort of passive-aggressive behavior is exactly like her. Janine said that Millie was released this morning, but only under supervision. Ham was at the office all day, so he obviously wasn't watching over her. I wonder who was... Setting aside this current mystery, also nagging at me is the absent manager of the vehicle maintenance facility, Gaiman Chomiak. I've heard the name before. I meant to research him when I was looking up Wendy's outreach program, but Hazel interrupted me.
The guy at the VMF told me that in order to talk to Gaiman Chomiak, I'd have to go back a year. Sitting at my kitchen table, I run a search on my laptop. Sure enough, a minor scandal. Two city employees disappeared simultaneously about a year ago. The manager of the vehicle maintenance facility and his assistant, Vera Penny. Gaiman Chomiak was married, and so was his assistant. He had two daughters, aged four and six. She had an eight-year-old son. It was assumed they ran off together, but neither contacted family members to let them know they were okay. The last article about them was approximately nine months ago. I remember the hubbub, but only now am I connecting it to the VMF. This gives me an even worse feeling than I already had about Paula Mercer. Manny Vasquez handing her cash on a Sunday afternoon. What was that about? And who is in charge of the city's heavy machinery? Paula? This is a typical example of the incompetence of the city council. It's just like that band of ineffectual sad sacks to let things flow along as they are without a discussion or a decision or even a search for a credentialed person to fill the vacated position. I call the mayor and get his voicemail. I leave this message. Mayor Cantu, this is Sandra Furlow. I'm wondering who's in charge at the vehicle maintenance facility since Gaiman Chomiak left last year. Get back to me on this, would you? A couple of hours later, as I'm getting out of my car at the CCC, heading in to grief, I get the creepy feeling that I'm being watched. I look all around, but I don't see any cars in the lot that shouldn't be there. I go inside. Several people have already arrived. I calculate my position in the circle according to where Wendy will sit. I sit two away from her regular place so that if she wants to speak directly to me, she'll have to shift and lean. Greeting Lurlene and Maria, I'm glad to be sitting next to Pete, who's also sitting next to Ellen. This will give me a chance to see how things are progressing between the two of them. As usual, Wendy comes in several minutes after we're supposed to start, taking another few minutes to settle in. She distributes her possessions around her like she's building a nest. Purse next to the right chair leg, briefcase next to the left, jacket over the back, pashmina across her shoulders. Her chair groans each time she adjusts. She really needs to lose some weight. I've never seen her open the briefcase. I make myself stop thinking about it. Two breakthroughs are reported this evening. One is Ellen's, whose loss is fresh. She's gotten through the last couple of days without crying. At one point, she brushes the back of her hand against the outer seam of Pete's jeans, a subtle affectionate gesture that tells me what I want to know. The other breakthrough is presented by Maria, who this weekend went on her first date since her husband died. How did that go for you? Wendy asks. It was okay, she says. His name's John, and he used to work with Charles. Maria doesn't enjoy being the center of attention, but she realizes that if she's going to be part of the group, she's going to have to share it now and then. Was it comfortable? Wendy wants to know. Yes, Maria answers. Did you feel guilty like you were betraying your husband? He mentioned joining the new square dancing group, Maria replies, like maybe he wanted me to join it with him. This is met with a collective groan. The new group, starting next week, is going to take place up the hall in the parlor at the same time as grief. We all anticipate noise, music, and laughter, all of which are good things, but in conflict with the somber goal of a grief support group. Are you ready to let go of our grief group? Wendy asks. I'm undecided, Maria answers. Do you like this guy? I ask, because if he goes into square dancing by himself, he'll be lost to you forever. Sandra, Wendy's tone is admonishing. What? I ask defensively. I'm just pointing out what she already knows. Women are going to outnumber men five to one in there. If he walks in single, he won't walk out that way. Maria looks thoughtful. Wendy looks disgruntled. During break, I don't 
pay close attention to the conversation. I'm dwelling on the odd feeling I had earlier in the parking lot. It was probably my imagination. Did someone actually break into my house and mess with my things, or did I imagine that, too? No, I'm pretty sure that really happened. But with the alarm going off in the middle of those two nights... When somebody come into my house and moving my possessions around, I don't feel safe in my home. I think I'll stop by the house, pick up Edgar and a few things, and spend the night at my parents. It's the best night's sleep I've had in several days. I pop up from my childhood bed feeling optimistic and energetic. And, oh good, toaster waffles for breakfast. Edgar is definitely happy to be back in his home. He pads around like a kitten, sniffing and rubbing his face in the curtains and against the couch, which is actually kind of gross. I go for a run around the neighborhood before getting ready for work. There have been changes in the area since I last spent time here. The Hershey's have a new Chevy truck, and the Vellables have put up a new fence. I leave Edgar at my parents' house. I'll pick him up this evening. Or I might spend another night here. I haven't been at work five minutes before Hazel bustles in about 20 minutes earlier than her usual time. The weirdest thing happened, she says, coming to a stop on the other side of the counter. When I got home yesterday, stuff from all over the house had been gathered and put in the middle of my bed. Wow, I respond. That happened to me, too. We share a look. It's just the kind of thing she'd do, Hazel says. She resents us because we spend time with Ham. It's just stupid. How does she think he can afford her if he doesn't work? She's been playing these games forever, I observe. It must be exhausting. But someone was supposed to be with her yesterday. Also, how did she get into your house? Wasn't your dad home? Honestly, my first thought was that it was one of his pranks, she tells me. But his brain is mush. He just wouldn't have the focus. It's a big house, unlocked most of the time. He said he didn't hear or see anything, but even if he did, he wouldn't remember. His dementia's gotten that bad? I ask. I call him several times a day to check on him, she says, and when I get home, he doesn't remember talking to me. The other day, he forgot that he'd eaten lunch, so he ate twice, and sometimes he doesn't recognize where he is, and he just ends up wandering around the house for hours trying to find something familiar. That's so sad, I say. It is what it is, she sighs, but what about this other? How do we handle it? I don't know that we should, I tell her. Whatever Millie meant by it, she said what she had to say. But we can't just let her get away with something like this, she protests. Let's think before we act, I say. We don't want to stir things up unnecessarily. She agrees, and we get started preparing for our day. Fifteen minutes later, Ham shuffles in. Yesterday, when I asked how Millie was doing, he told me he didn't want to talk about it. So bringing it up today would be intrusive. There simply is no tactful way to ask him who was babysitting his crazy wife yesterday. So I let it go. Sometimes situations simply can't be handled. By noon, I haven't received a return call from the mayor, so I call him again. Because he knows it's me calling, he answers with a beleaguered sigh. I don't know who replaced Guyman Chomiak, he tells me. Sometimes city jobs are like grains of sand. Whoever's nearest fills the empty space. Am I hearing you right? I ask. The man disappears along with his assistant, and the next person on the employment ladder moves up? No questions asked? What's the problem here, Sandra? He wants to know. How is this any of your business? A sociopath is in charge of millions of dollars worth of city equipment, I tell him. So, he says, sociopaths are people too. And he ends the call. At lunch, instead of walking the stairs with my friends, I decide to check on Tansy. In the parking garage, I get that same feeling of being watched. Fearful and nervous, I stop progress toward my car. I take a visual circle of my surroundings, thinking that maybe I'll see a car that doesn't belong. But this is a medical building. There are always unfamiliar cars. 
Off to the left, there's a click of footsteps and then the sh a frantic scurrying. But when I gaze in that direction, there's no one there. This is ridiculous. Resolutely taking control of my anxiety, I head toward the sound, passing several cars and stopping when I get to the area where I think the noise came from. Squatting, I peer under a Buick. Beth Kyle's looking back at me from the other side. What the hell? I ask, irritated that I was frightened by this useless, monkey-faced woman. Paula asked me to, she says. Why? This is a development I want to explore. She wants to know if you go near Tansy, she replies. Let me take you to lunch, I invite. We both straighten. Why? she asks. Well, if you're going to keep following me, we should know each other better, I explain. I just need to get my things, she says. We stop by a green Kia, where she dons a shapeless plaid jacket and grabs her scuffed purse. Then we head toward my car. In a town the size of Caprock, everybody knows everybody else a little bit. Here's what I can't help but be aware of about Beth. Her father owns a small accounting firm in the strip mall at 37th and Wheatfield. During her teen years, she worked at the Burger King on Haverly. She's in her late 20s, and she has never distinguished herself in any way. Also, she doesn't go to any trouble over her appearance at all. I doubt she'd know what to do with moisturizer. And did she buy that jacket at the feed store? Heavy and slow, she emits small grunts as she walks beside me. When we get in the closed space of the car, the smell she carries in her hair and on her clothes, cigarettes and B.O., is offensive. Pressing my lips together in an effort to stifle comment, I start the car, back out, and negotiate the ramps to the exit in silence. You brought this all on yourself, she says as I join the flow of traffic. Spying on us and showing up places and asking questions, it's really none of your business what we do or how we live. If I quit caring about what other people do or don't do, I respond, nothing would get done and nobody would know anything about anything. Paula says you think you're better than everybody else, she tells me. She thinks somebody ought to teach you a lesson. And she's doing this by slashing my tires and setting off my alarm? I ask. Whatever. Her eye roll indicates boredom, but I suspect she's anything but. Where do you work, I want to know. What do you do when you're not following me or hanging on to Paula? See, she says, none of your business. How do you feel about Paula putting Tansy in the hospital, I ask. Aren't you scared you'll be next? Her only response is a snort, as though I've said something nonsensical. Silence prevails until I pull into the only empty parking place at the chicken place on Kent. I open my door, but she doesn't get out on her side. Come on, I tell her. I'm buying. We're going in? She asks, surprised. We're not doing the drive through I don't believe in drive throughs I say. And there's the big difference between you and me, she observes. I'm pretty sure there's more than one big difference, I reply. She hunches along, staying just behind my right shoulder, flanking me the same way she flanks Paula. She gets two number fours, each consisting of four fried chicken tenders, and I get a salad. She gets a large, full-sugared Dr. Pepper, and I get water. She's consuming two days' worth of calories. After we gather our napkins and utensils and carry them to a table beside the window, I get a little preachy about her intake. Are you aware of what you're putting in your mouth? I ask. Don't you care about your health or your appearance at all? There you go again, she says. None of your business. How much do you know about Paula's job at the VMF? I ask. Did you know those two people who went missing last year? I take a bite. The lettuce is wilted, but the cherry tomatoes bring a burst of flavor. Boy, you really do stick your nose into every little thing, she responds, grasping her plastic fork in her fist, poking a golden piece of chicken and dipping it into a container of yellow goo. She lifts it to her lips and tears it with her teeth. If I keep asking questions, I say, eventually I'll put one out there that you'll answer. Never going to happen, she predicts. Only three chews before swallowing. Did you know Hector Vasquez? I ask. She acts like I haven't spoken. Did you ever visit Tansy at her job? Again, no response. Did Tansy and Hector get along? Another bite.
Does Paula know that you and Tansy get together when she's not around? This is the most delicate way I can think of to phrase it. She looks up, meets my eye, presenting a deliberately impassive gaze, then returns her concentration to the contents of the box on the table. Is that the reason you had a black eye a couple of weeks ago? Because Paula found out about you and Tansy? She's not answering, and she's not going to answer. I've learned nothing except that she has appalling eating habits. I try one more time. Why would Paula go see Hector's son, Manny? Why would she take money from him? She takes a long swig of her sweet, sweet soft drink. Okay, that's it. Excuse me a minute, I say, swiveling in the chair and coming to my feet, giving the impression that I'm going to the restroom. I don't head toward the restroom. I walk out the door and across the parking lot to my CRV, abandoning the salad and the taciturn lesbian. As I back out, I catch sight of her slumped form through the window. Angry and shocked, her eyes are big and her jaw is dropped as she watches me pull away. I suppose it never occurred to her that I'd drive her far from her car and dump her. According to Caprock etiquette, this is about the rudest, most audacious, and abominable thing one person can do to another. Ha! I shout a mean laugh at her as I pull out of the lot. After work, I go to the mall. There are less than ten cars in the parking lot at the west entrance, and when I get inside, there are only a few people strolling around. I head toward the luggage and leather shop. The aroma of the leather reaches out into the mall and draws me in. The briefcases are on the right side, close to the front. I didn't come in looking for a green one, but it catches my eye. Ordinarily, I'm indifferent towards green, and I certainly never thought I'd want a green briefcase, but this shade is deep and mesmerizing, the rich mottled color of thick clover and cool shade. I run the ends of my fingertips along its side, cool to the touch, soft and firm at the same time. Not the traditional hard rectangle, but more of a satchel with a leather shoulder strap and a flap that folds over the top in the most elegant way. I pull it off the shelf and examine it further. The interior is roomy, divided into three compartments. There's enough room for both my laptop and my iPad, and the slots in the rear compartment are perfect for credit cards and car keys. There's a zip pocket for small items. There's an easily accessible pocket meant specifically for my phone. If I carry this, I won't have to carry a purse. At $695, it's the most expensive one in the store. May I help? The sales girl asks, approaching from the center counter. I love this, I stroke it once more, but I can't afford it. It's very nice, she says. Is the sale coming up? I want to know. In three weeks, but this is an Ocali, hand-tooled leather with Grimby hardware. It won't be included in any sale. I pull out my credit card, and Ocali. I bet Wendy's is just some off-brand she bought online. I hug it to me as I return to my car. Stopping by my parents' house, I give Edgar fresh food and water, then go home to have a quick dinner and to change clothes before addiction. At my house, I pay special attention to the placement of random items. Everything seems to be where it should be. But a couple of people are mad at me, so I'll spend another night or two at my parents'. I spend several minutes filling and organizing my new briefcase. I'm thrilled that I can carry all my technology with me. I call Christopher, my handyman, and ask if he's available sometime tomorrow to repair the broken lock on the window. He says he'll be by in the morning. There's a new person in addiction. Her name is Loretta. In her late 40s, she introduces herself and tells us she has a drinking problem. At first, I had a glass of wine with dinner. Her face droops with sorrow and worry. Then I added one before dinner, too. And then I started having one after dinner, so now I drink a whole bottle of wine every night, and I can't seem to stop myself. Why don't you drink boxed wine, Maria asks. Then it won't be as obvious how much you're drinking, and you'll be able to enjoy it more. Boxed wine's more sugary, Bill says, and it all tastes the same. But it's cheaper, this from Carol, who shifts restlessly. 
I like your hair, I tell Loretta. Those highlights are amazing. Where did you get it done? The platinum streaks are quite dramatic. Also, though I've never considered such a short style, I bet I could carry it off. Thank you, she says, pleased, and I like your briefcase. The briefcase is propped against the leg of my chair. In addition to all the things a purse holds, keys, tissues, lip balm, mirror, wallet, cigarettes, the briefcase holds my phone and my iPad and my MacBook. I can find out anything about anybody, anytime, and anywhere. It's new, I tell her proudly, reaching down and stroking it. I never thought I'd like a green one, but I just fell in love with it. It's lovely, she says. She directs a fond smile toward it. She likes it as much as I do. You're that girl from the town meeting. Everybody in the circle turns big eyes toward me, waiting for my reaction. I just wanted to know who gave approval for the group that started meeting on Monday nights, I explain. Will I be defending myself over this until I die? What kind of group, someone asks. I thought the CCC was closed on Mondays, Carol says. I don't want to talk about it, I tell them. If they're curious about the Monday night group, they can come up here and find out for themselves. People always want to know what I know, but they disdain my methods of figuring things out. It turns out that Loretta is a smoker, which means that she joins us outside during the break. We're running a little late this evening, so it's darker than usual. A dozen of us stand around across the street inhaling and making conversation. All that's visible are shadows and the burning tips of cigarettes. You have any more trouble with Paula Mercer? Bill asks. Paula Mercer's bad news. This comment comes from a man on the far side of the circle. The darkness makes it difficult to know who's saying what. Joe Epps went with me to see her, I say, and we worked things out, but then she told that friend of hers, Beth, to follow me everywhere, so I don't know what that's about. Epps, isn't he the primary detective on the Vasquez murder? This is from Herman, a car salesman with a fondness for cocaine. What's he doing getting involved in a petty girl fight? Epps is an idiot. They're all idiots. This opinion's offered by Felicia, a pharmacist with an oxycodone dependency. Do any of you remember those two people who disappeared last year? I ask. Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny. The city workers who ran off together? Loretta asks. They both had children, I tell them. They were both married. They had parents and siblings. Don't you think it's odd that no one ever heard from them? Not even a call saying they're okay? I take a final shallow pull on my cigarette, drop it, grind it out. You don't know that, Herman says. They might have contacted family members. Why'd you bring this up? Bill asks. Just wondering, I say. Herman's right. I don't know for sure that neither of the VMF employees contacted their families. I'll dig deeper into it tomorrow. After the meeting, Paula Mercer's Camaro is parked next to my CRV, and Paula's leaning against my passenger door. My car's beneath one of the overhead lights, so our confrontation will be fully visible to all my friends who are also making their ways to their cars. That's good. Her arms are crossed over her ribcage. She's changed her neat work clothes for jeans, a t-shirt, and a shapeless plaid jacket similar to the one Beth was wearing. The shadow, caused by the beam from above, makes her beaky nose seem even more long and pointed than usual. Hi, Paula, I greet her. Why are you here? You abandoned Beth at lunch today. Yes, I say. I wonder how angry she is over the infraction. Good one, she laughs. Apparently she's not. She says you're asking questions you ought not to be asking. You mean like what really happened to Gaiman Chomiak and Vera Penny? I ask. Yeah, she says, like that. Did you resent Vera because Gaiman hired her for the position instead of you? I want to know. He wasn't going to get from me what he was getting from her, she explains, a nasty implication. What's your relationship with Manny Vasquez? I ask. Enough with the questions. She steps in close, almost nose to nose, but she has to bend way down to achieve the effect. She's got eight inches and 80 pounds on me. But I refuse to be intimidated. I hold my ground as she releases her arms from their wrapped position and takes a fighting stance. Then she pulls her right arm back and crams her fist into my left side. The pain is sharp. 
Falling back a step, I bend over, gasping. It happened so fast, I didn't even have a chance to defend myself. Hey, it's Bill coming at a run. Hey, yourself, Paula says. She puts her hand on the back of my head, holding me in the hunched position. Look, tiny dancer, it's your gallant hero, coming a little late to the party. Sandra, Bill asks, are you all right? Obviously not. I cannot breathe. I cannot move. I try to straighten, but Paula keeps her hand on my head, pushing me down. A bully's move. All I can see is their feet, Bill's new work boots, her scuffed loafers. After a few more seconds of making her point, she takes a step back, releases my head. I try to come up, but the pain in my side is sharp when I try to move. Bill steps close, takes my arm, supports me as I straighten. The briefcase bumps against my right hip. I'm relieved to feel its weight, but I refrain from stroking or adjusting it. If Paula notices it, if she realizes that it's new, that it's important to me, she could do even more damage than she already has. Don't think for a minute that I don't know how to hurt people, she says, and she circles her car, gets in, and drives away. Bill and I collapse against my car. The others from group call their goodnights to one another as they disperse and leave. I rub my side where she punched me. I'm going to be purple and sore for days. I'm pretty sure she cracked a rib. She knows how to hurt people, Bill says. And she knows where I live, I remind him. You okay to get home? He asks. Yeah, I reply, wanting him gone because I'm fixing to start crying. Thanks. He doesn't go to his truck until I'm locked and belted in and driving from the lot. As good as it feels to sleep in my childhood room, I don't like the shower at Mom and Dad's. The water pressure is low and mold has taken root in the grout. So instead of getting dressed at their house, I zip my clothes and toiletries into my small suitcase, stick Edgar in his carrier, hook my briefcase over my shoulder, and return to my own home. Living in two spaces is confusing and inconvenient. I'm going to have to come up with an alternative solution. Also, my left side is very tender. A sharp pain seizes me every time I twist, bend, or draw a deep breath. I'm glad I have the weekend to recover. At my back door, laden with Edgar's carrier, the briefcase, and the suitcase containing my personal items, I'm alerted to the altered atmosphere before I stick the key in the lock. For one thing, the window with the faulty latch is raised a few inches. Also, there's a scratching noise coming from inside and an odor I don't recognize, sweet and earthy, like mulch or old bananas. Cautiously, slowly, I open the door. A snout pokes through. It snorts. I catch a glimpse of pointy ears before I pull the door closed. Who to call? Hmm. I hear a car pull up out front. Placing my unwieldy load on the back porch, I shuffle to the driveway and up the side of the house, holding my hand to my sore side for support. It's a police car. Two officers are in the process of getting out, both men, both overweight and in their 30s. Though I've met many of the city's finest, I don't recognize these two. Hello? I call, stepping forward to meet them. Sandra Furlow? One of them asks. We got a call about the stolen pigs. Yeah, they're in there. I point towards the house. Why would you do that? He shakes his head, puzzled and saddened by the state of the world. Who steals helpless pigs from a zoo? First of all, I say, I didn't. And secondly, you need to make arrangements to get those animals out of my house. Not our job. This from the other one. We need you to come with us to the station. He expects me to complacently get in his car and be driven to the police station while pigs run loose in my home doing God knows what. I don't see that happening, I say, turning and walking back up the driveway. Returning to my back door, I leave the cat and my possessions outside, taking only my briefcase. Edgar releases a disgruntled meow as I prepare to enter the house without him. I open the door a crack, pushing it at the pigs, blocking them from escaping as I enter. They nudge at my legs, heavy blocks of flesh, more firm than they look. 
There are only two of them, but it feels like six. I'm fearful, expecting them to bite, but they don't. I set the briefcase safely on the counter as the doorbell rings. Surrounded by pigs, I go to answer it. I open the door only a few inches. Get these pigs out of my house, I tell the two policemen on the porch. I want animal control and some sort of conveyance here right away. Only then will I talk to you. I close the door, return to the kitchen, and extracting my phone from its pocket in the briefcase, call Joe Epps. I came home to find the pigs that were stolen from the zoo in my house, I tell him. It's seven o'clock on a Saturday morning, he says. Came home from where? I spent the night at my parents, and when I came home this morning, the pigs were here. Someone broke into your house and left the pigs, he asks. Yes, I say, and then called the police, accusing me of stealing them. You didn't set the alarm? Obviously not. Paula had to have been watching me at my parents' house in order to time the arrival of the police to follow mine so closely. You didn't lock up, he asked. How'd they get in? A lock's broken on a window. It's being fixed this morning. How can you deny being involved in this thing when you're obviously right in the middle of it, he accuses. Also, why are you calling me? Why aren't you calling animal control? Two policemen are at my front door, I say, wanting to haul me off and charge me with a crime. Smelly, filthy pigs are rolling around on my nice rug. I don't have animal control in my contacts, but I do have you. I'm on my way, but I'm not happy about it. Hurry, I say, ending the call. I figure they're called pigs for a reason, and I go to find something for them to eat. Pulling out my biggest bowl, I gather a few cans, cream corn, mushroom soup, chili, open them and dump them in. I stir the concoction and put it on the floor. The two pigs bury their faces and grunt joyously as they consume. It's gone in less than a minute. Unable to get cleaned up and ready for the day, unable to relax, I walk a circle around my house, stopping at the front window every time I pass, willing someone to come right now and take these beasts off my hands. The pigs follow me, nudging from behind and occasionally snapping at each other. Tansy arrives before Joe does. I guess he must have called her. A truck from Animal Control pulls up behind her. The two police officers, who have been sitting in their car for the last 20 minutes, get out and greet the newcomers. The three-person team from Animal Control dons gear, masks, body armor, and long poles with loops on the end. They must think they're going into battle. When they get to the porch, I open the door, only a few inches because the pigs will run out. You're not going to have to fight them, I say. Probably you could just ask them to get in the truck and they'd happily comply. Tansy comes up behind them. Her shirt is buttoned crookedly and her hair is not combed. I'm sorry to see that the beating she took has caused permanent damage. Her nose is slightly crooked now and her jawbones are no longer symmetrical. Also, that gash on her forehead may be healing, but it's never going away. You look better than the last time I saw you, I comment. Noticing the cast that starts at her lower arm, encases her wrists, and extends to include her thumb, I point to it and ask, What exactly is broken? Why'd you take my pigs? she asks. In response, I roll my eyes. It takes them less than five minutes to loop the pigs and guide them up a ramp and into the cages in the back of the truck. The policemen turn toward me, intent on taking me with them for interrogation. Luckily, Joe shows up before the situation becomes confrontational. Clad in weekend attire, jeans, t-shirt, and a worn leather jacket, he took the time to stop and buy a cup of coffee. Tell them, I say to him as he approaches. She tends to rub people the wrong way, he informs, sipping the coffee, which makes me want a cup of coffee too. Somebody put them in her house because she made them mad. She didn't steal the pigs? One of them asks. We still need to talk to her, the other one says. Just get her statement, Joe says. You don't need to take her anywhere, and you, he addresses me, seems like it might be a good time for you to take a vacation and give us all a rest. Pivoting abruptly, he returns to his car, leaving the aroma of good coffee in his wake. He settles behind the wheel and drives away. Let's get this over with, I tell them. I've got things to do. 
I'm not going to ask them in. They can ask their questions out here on my front lawn. They record my statement and leave. This took up an hour of my morning. I go to the back of the house, gather Edgar and the suitcase, and return to the kitchen. I open the door of Edgar's carrier and make coffee. An hour later, Christopher stops by with his toolbox and a new lock and repairs the lock on the window. He charges me $75. So that's done. This concludes the sixth installment of Snooping Caprock. In the next segment, Sandra will research the two people who went missing from Paula's business the year before, and she will eavesdrop on a painful conversation between two work friends, Hazel and Ham. Also, she will be shocked when Tansy attacks her and locks her in a room at the zoo. 